0: Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Before I start, um, I, uh, I've i been debating about how to do this or whether to do this, but um, I uh, something in our culture that uh, I struggle with a lot is the feeling that whenever something happens, that everyone who's in front of a microphone uh, needs to have a comment about that thing and also in our culture we all perceive uh, our social media accounts as our personal microphone uh, to make our statements and um, I believe that there is an expectation that for a lot of churches that when something happens that their minister uh, needs to be able to say something about it and I often struggle with that because I primarily just don't think I'm more qualified than any of y'all to say anything impactful. And especially when something like the tragedy in Uvalde happens, uh, I, and there are no words to say, I feel extra unqualified. But despite my best, uh, in, despite my best thoughts, I, I am going to share something. Uh, there are times, I, many of you who've been able to be a parent have maybe thought about this, but uh, when you were, your kids were young, and my daughter, she's three right now, there's times at 2 or 3 a.m. she'll come into our room and she'll she'll ask me or Catherine if we'll snuggle with her because she can't go to sleep. And uh, she did that uh, the other night and all I could think about the whole time was the parents who are never going to get to do that with their kids again. And the parents that are going to spend every night for the past, for the next years with the kid, their child, because their child can't go to sleep. Because they watched their friend have blood all over them. And uh, that's all I could think about pretty much nonstop was just how there are people that that are hurting. And I keep asking myself, what's the thing I should say? What's the appropriate response to make? And I've decided I'm going to go two directions with it. First, I'm going to say what you shouldn't do. Um, I don't have the answer, but I do know that um, whenever you decide to go on social media or you decide to have a conversation about this, you bear the image of Christ. And the way you talk about this and the way you go on Facebook and post about this will determine how some people who are on the fence about Jesus decide whether or not they want to buy in to Jesus or they don't want to be a part of that. I see the way that they're talking and acting, and I either want to know more about this Messiah who is beside the broken and the powerless, or I either or I don't, and I don't want to be a part of whatever this is because it looks ugly. And so, my encouragement to you is instead of when something like this happens, immediately taking on the flag of your political party, I encourage you to do what Jesus probably would do, which is to say nothing and to hold people and to cry with people and to be beside the broken. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is I often am very frustrated with prayer. As many of you before have many times experienced things where you don't understand prayer, you don't understand how it works, you don't understand why it doesn't work the way you want it to work, you don't get it. I'm right there with you. I've had many moments like that where I'm very perplexed at why Prayers aren't going the way I want them to go. Or, or what I'll do is sometimes when someone tells me about something going on and I say, I'll pray for you. In my mind, I think they just heard me say, well, sorry, I can't really do anything about that. So uh, best wishes. But I have trust in God and God tells us to pray to him. And so I have trust in prayer. I don't know what it's doing. I don't know how it's doing it. But I put my trust that prayer actually does make a difference. And prayer is powerful. And even when I don't see it, he's moving. Even when I don't understand it, he's moving. And so I want to encourage you that even though it may seem like saying something loud on social media might feel a lot more like action than being quiet and praying, I want to encourage you that if you trust in God, then that means you trust in prayer. And that means that prayer is a lot more action than what we give it credit for, Okay. So if you would join me before I preach this sermon, we're going to pray, uh, and I'm going to use Psalm 6 as my prayer, and then we'll get into the word. Dear God, be merciful to me, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, they fail because of all my foes. Away from me all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord hears my prayer. Amen. So uh, I thought to myself, as I thought about what to say, I thought, how am I going to transition from that to a sermon? And I do believe that there's something powerful about rhythms in our lives, spiritual rhythms. Whether you're in a high season or a low season, I encourage you to wake up and pray to God and pray to God before you go to bed, a rhythm. Whether you're in a good time of your life or a bad time, I encourage you to open up God's word and read from the Bible, a spiritual rhythm. Well, guess what? Another spiritual rhythm is every week us coming in here together, praising God, whether we're in our highs or lows, and hearing a message from His Word. And so in the spirit of that, let's get into the rhythm of of doing a sermon. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 3. We've been going through a series called The Powerful and the Powerless. And this is one of those passages that I've read enough, and I've thought about enough, that to me, it just shouts that it fits in this sermon series, but I can also imagine that you might be very curious why we're going to talk about this passage. So just join with me and hopefully by the end of it you can see, or hopefully I've helped you see, the ways in which this story, a very unique story, does connect with the message of the powerful and the powerless. This theme we've been discussing about how in the Bible there's many times where we look at the dynamics of people who have power and the ones that don't, and over and over again, we see God and Jesus beside those who don't have it. And over and over, we see God and his people choosing to not take the power road, but to ch- take the road of emptiness. And so we're going to continue that today. And before, we're going to be in Matthew 4 for most of this, but before we get there, I want to just introduce Matthew 4 by reading this. Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. And they all share the same message that before Jesus gets going on his corporate message, God comes down and says, I want you to know who you are. I've referenced this passage a lot. I believe it's like. Whenever someone is about to get up to do a big performance, someone's about to compete in a big game or about to do a big piano recital, and the crowd does a standing ovation before they even start as a way of saying, before you do anything, I want you to know we already think you're amazing. We already are proud of you. You're already blessed. And I've talked a lot about how when you start your life on the foot of knowing that you're a blessed child of God, it makes a big difference than when you start your life on the foot of, you better be really great so that at the end of this, you can be called a blessed child of God. You with me? And so we have right at the start, this identity where God says to Jesus, you are my son. And then we have this really confusing story that many of us don't quite understand. Or if we do understand it, we probably haven't read it enough. So the very next line Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Quite a, quite a whiplash there. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. I'm going to just go ahead and read the story, and then we can come back. But Matthew 4, we have this famous story that is in uh, the Synoptic Gospels at least. So, then Jesus was led by the Spirit... After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Okay, so it wasn't that long ago that I preached a sermon on passages in the Bible that talk about the idea of being tested or tempted. So it wasn't that long ago that we read this. And if you're familiar, one of the things that's very unique and confusing about this story is that opening line. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. If any of you read that and you're like, wait a second, what? Shouldn't it be, and then Jesus went into the wilderness casually and the the devil showed up? Or shouldn't it be, and God, you know, if you're confused by that, come to Wednesday night class and let's talk more about it, okay? Because there's not enough time here today to try and unpack it. But one thing that you should know, and one thing that I will talk about today, is that throughout the Bible, we see scenes in which the people of God face choices. Adam and Eve At the very beginning of their identity, they are told, you are the image of God, you are my children, and right after that, you have a scene of testing and tempting. The people of Israel go out into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus, wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, you're supposed to see the connection, and immediately they are tested about whether or not they're going to serve God or whether or not they're going to constantly want to go back to Egypt. Jesus comes and he is tested, and so what I want you to see and I want you to hold on to is In all of this, I believe we're supposed to recognize that part of who we are as people is we are people who are told by God from birth, from our start, you are beloved, you are my image. And yet the enemy will constantly want to spend your life trying to convince you what that is supposed to look like. Okay? You see from the testings, the enemy knows his Bible. Okay? The enemy knows what to say to try and twist. You know, did God really say you couldn't, if you ate from that fruit, you would die? I don't think that's exactly what God said And twisting, okay? But we have this line where he says, and I, I think this is so important. The first two tests, he starts with, if you are the son of God, okay? And so we have Jesus going into baptism, and immediately God tells him, you are my son. And the first thing the enemy wants to do is to say, okay, if you're really God's son, then blank. The next time... If you really are God's son, then blank. And what I want you to hear is that you may think that this is a story about Jesus and the devil and that's it. And I'll, I'll let you do that. But I think the reason why all the gospel writers, except for maybe John, all the gospel writers included this story is because they believe it is a part of our story as people. Just like Israel went through, just like Adam and Eve went through. Part of our story is that you will constantly face questions of whether or not you're going to hold on to the truth that you are God's son, and what exactly, or God's son or daughter, and what exactly that's going to look like, okay? So let's go to the first temptation, and all I'm going to do for the rest of this sermon is I'm going to try and show you how each of these temptations, in my opinion, is somehow related to the idea of power, okay? This series is on the powerful and the powerless. And we see this most clearly in the third of the temptations. So we have this first temptation. Jesus has been in the wilderness for a really, really long time. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And Satan says, listen, if you're really God's son, go ahead and you know, do something about it. Go ahead and say, you, you know, if you're really God's son, you have the power to take these rocks and to feed yourself so you're no longer hungry. And Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy. All of these come from the same passage in Deuteronomy that talks about Israel being tested in the wilderness. And he quotes, he says, Man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I see the power dynamic in this one as saying, Okay, Jesus, if you really have the power, are you going to be willing to take your circumstances and twist them so that you're no longer uncomfortable? And Jesus' response is to say, okay, I have the choice of using my power to make things the way I would like them. I'm not hungry anymore. Or of saying, I'm going to trust God that even in any circumstances, he will be able to provide me with what I need. And this is something that if you were a note taker, I would put a slide on the screen that says, will you trust or take matters into your own hands? Jesus is not going to use his power to change his circumstances. He's going to say, My starving situation does not define me, but I trust that God will take care of me and I don't have to manipulate this. And how often I am the worst at this right here? If I've got something I've got a plan for for church, if I've got something, if I've got a big summer mission trip that I was planning as a youth minister, you want to know how many times I stressed about whether I had all my logistics figured out? Neighborhood Clifton, you want to know how much I stressed about making sure all the details were right? You want to know how little time I spent on my knees saying, God, I just pray that you be with this endeavor. I trust you. Very little. How many times when you have some drama in your family going on, have you spent talking on the phone to try and figure out how you're going to fix that nephew or that sibling or that parent or that? But yet, we don't find ourselves saying, God, in these circumstances, I am lost. But... I trust that I can't live on just what I can take into my own control with my own power. I trust in you being in charge. Okay? That's a big one that we all face. All right. Number two. The second temptation. This one, I have a harder time seeing the power dynamic. I'll be honest. But I think it's there. He says, if you are my beloved, I dare you to jump off this and see if your angels will catch you. I don't understand this one as much because I keep thinking, what's in this for Jesus? <laughs> you know? Like with the bread, he's starving. You know, if he turns the rocks to bread, that's great for him. But I don't really know what's in it for him to be like, you know what, that's a good point. Okay, here we go, you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off this high place. With the first test, I see the benefit, with, but not with this one. But I believe that what the tempter is doing is he is taking this psalm of trust because it's a psalm he's quoting from one of the psalms, I think it's Psalm 99. And in that psalm, it's talking about how with God's anointed, that we can trust that his angels will be there to protect him. And he's saying, well, you know, are you going to trust God or not? And what I see Jesus saying here is, I trust the Father, and I am not going to make him perform tricks for me. And by the way, many of us, I, I know a time in my life where I was in the bathroom as a high schooler, crying, saying to God, God, if you'll just do this one thing for me, I promise I'll trust you for the rest of my life. I won't, I'll believe that you're real. Okay? Have any of you ever been in a situation where you weren't sure about God, you weren't sure that he was real, and you made a prayer to God where you said, God, if you would just see this thing through, I'll believe that you're real. Who's the guy in the Bible with the fleece, the, the wool fleece, the wet fleece, and the dry fleece? What's his name again? Is it, it's Gideon, right? Gideon says, okay, God, Uh, Jacob, when he's at, Jacob sees God and wrestles with God. He basically says in the wrestling match, he's like, Hey, if you'll take care of me, I'll believe in you that you're God. So we see this throughout scripture, but Jesus, his response is to say, okay, I am not going to treat God as something that I'm going to put to the test all the time. I'm going to continue to see him as someone that I'm going to trust and I'm going to trust in him in this situation. Okay. Now the third one, the big one, the big daddy. All right. With the third one, we get to the third temptation, and you find it says, again, and this is the first time where Jesus or Satan doesn't say, if you are the Son of God. It's almost like Satan's realized he can't he can't win that one. He just says, He takes him to a high place where he can see all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he says, All this I give you if you will bow down and worship me. And once again, I am very confused at why Jesus would want to do anything about this for me personally as a kid, sorry, for me as a kid, I used to think, okay, so Jesus is seeing all these kingdoms and in his mind, he's like, I am the king of kings. What, why do I need to say yes to worshiping you? I'm already this, right? I, it it would be like if someone came up to me and said, you know, Drew, if you will worship me, I could make you Andrew Mitchell Ritchie. And you could be married to Catherine Ritchie and have two kids. And I'm kind of like, well, I, I have that already. What, are you, what exactly are you trying to convince me of? But here is where I think we see the secret to this conversation about power and powerlessness. When Jesus is on this high place and he see all, sees all the kingdoms of the world and Satan says, I could give this to you, what we have to realize is that to the world and to Jesus, that is not the kind of king that Jesus was coming to be. Does that make sense? I think of Jesus as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So, of course, he already has all those kingdoms. But he doesn't have it in the way that we think of kings and kingdoms. You with me? For Satan, he's saying, guess what, Jesus? Okay, you're the Son of God. Okay, God, you're going to have God's power and God's blessing. But I am making you an offer. If you'll worship me, then I will give you world power instead of God's power. So, if you're a note taker... This is the place where you write down in the very, very important thing where you say, do you want world power or do you want God's power? I think, um, uh, just to make an analogy that hopefully helps this out, many of you have had a time in your life where you had to choose between what was easy or fun and what was right. You've been there before, okay, where you had to see the easy option and you had to choose the right option that wasn't easy. I think the clearest example that would maybe relate to all of us is when you have a friend or loved one in your life that you have to try and find a way to love them and the question you have to ask is, am I going to love them the easy way or the right way? You with me? Okay. And you know what that usually means? It means the easy way is to not say anything about that thing that you can see is ruining their life. The easy thing is to say, I'm not going to make a comment about this thing because then they're going to hate me. Then they're going to be really mad at me. Then they're going to not want to talk to me. And we're going to have this tension and Thanksgiving's going to be awkward. That's the easy way. But the right way is to say, I love you so much that I'm willing to have this hard conversation with you because of how much I love you. And guess what? They're probably not going to like you. And in the short term, you probably are going to have a season of tension of separation but why did you do it did you do it because it was the easy thing or did you do it because you knew it was the right and true thing and here in my opinion i'm going to try and make this transition but in this scene the thing that satan is trying to do is he's saying okay god i got jesus you've got power but let me tell you about the power i have to offer the power i have to offer is a lot of fun there's a lot of shortcuts In our world, Jesus, in my world, power means that if you're the strongest and you're the most powerful, you get to decide what's right and true. The strongest, the wealthiest, the most successful, you get to determine how things go. The tempter says to Jesus, in my world power, did you know that you can take any kingdom you want by force because you're stronger? Did you know in my kingdom you can take any woman you want by force because you're stronger? This is the best kind of power. Jesus, this is what you want okay and you may be thinking to yourself well that's obvious for jesus he's a really good guy it should be really obvious to him not to go down that path any one of us who has ever faced an opportunity to choose the more fun or the easier path can all attest that it is not an easy choice ever and jesus is able to say to satan away from me satan i'm going to worship god only and i'm going to choose God's kind of power over your kind of power. Jesus passes the test, and what we get to see, and the thing that I talked about in my test series, is that over and over, the test with Adam and Eve was, are you going to choose what God says is right or what you say is right? Your own knowledge of good and evil or God's knowledge of good and evil? And they fail the test. The people in Israel frequently fail the test and say, we're going to trust us and what we think is right, not what you think is right. And we do this all the time. And one way that we can look at it, the way I talked about it in the series, of the testing series, was to say we can trust whether we think we're right or God's right. But in this series, what I want you to hear me say is that the third and final test is a test we face all the time, which is are we going to choose whether we're going to use God's power or the world's power to get things done, to be representatives and rulers. For Jesus, he says, I'm going to choose God's power, which looks like giving up power. It looks like washing feet. It looks like the first being last and the last being first. It looks like forgiveness. God's power is difficult and often unenjoyable in the immediate. But it's often, and it's often against our better instincts, but it is true power. I'm not going to take long on this because we're already over time. But there are a few ways in which students, you'll know when one of your friends gets the key to the test, and everybody in class has heard that they have the key to the test. And for you, it's like, well, it's not really that wrong because we're all about to use this key to the test. And you have to decide whether you're going to do the easy thing or the right thing. Parents, you're going to have many times where your kid wants to do something because all their friends are getting to do it. I want to go see that movie. That I'm, I'm six years old, but I want to see that rated X movie. And all my buddies are doing it. And you as a parent have to decide, would I rather do the right thing or would I rather do the easy thing because I want my kids to like me like they like all their parents? And by the way, I'm picking, that's a very tame analogy, but you know what I'm talking about. There's more analogies like that where parents are constantly having to decide, well, I don't know if we should do that, but I really want my kids to be in that right group at school, that cool group at school. So I'm gonna do what it takes to make sure they're in that cool group. Whether I think it's right or not, it's gonna be easier for them. Uh, There's a church model that was started in the 60s that said if everyone in the church looks the same and is in the same kind of group, that church will grow. And guess what? They built a lot of churches that did just that. If everybody is 30 and white and wealthy, that church is going to grow like crazy because they all can relate to each other. If you take a church that's in a different kind of ethnicity, a different kind of social setting, and you get them all to look the same, that church will take off and grow. And guess what happens? Church leaders are tempted to say, am I going to go with that model because it's easier, it's more fun, I look way more successful when I have a thousand members? Or are they going to take the Jesus route that says, actually true community looks like a whole bunch of people that are all a whole bunch of different ethnicity, a whole bunch of different wealth classes, and say that at the name of Jesus, every knee and tongue will bow and confess that Christ is Lord, even if it means there's only 20 of us. You with me? Okay? So when we follow Jesus, we have to realize that we will be tested and tempted by these same questions. Who will put their trust? Who will you put your trust in? Whose power are you going to use? We have to realize that our power looks weak and uncool to the world and our peers. Will we use our power, the world's power, or will we use God's? We have to believe that God's power, despite how unsuccessful it might look in many situations, Despite how it might look like dying on the cross, like being last, we have to believe that that is the source of where real power that really changes the world comes from. If any of you want to know more about that, or if there's anything that we can be praying for you about, elders will be standing at the doors while we stand and while we sing this song. 749, the battle belongs to the Lord. In heavenly armor we enter the land, the battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned. To...